Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Remember when you were in your early 20s? You're at the cusp of independence and the career path you've chosen seems pretty straightforward. Brittany Barnett had a mind for math and found herself drawn to accounting and corporate law. But when she was a law student, she learned about a woman that made Barnett go down a path that had very little to do with her career goals. Barnett joins Where We Live today to talk about her memoir, A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. Brittany Barnett is an attorney, and she joins us on Zoom from Texas. Brittany, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And you can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. So that woman you learned about, Brittany, when you were a law student was Sharonda Jones, and she was in prison serving life without parole for a drug conviction. You write in your book, her story struck me at my core, and she reminded you of your mother. Before we talk about Sharonda, can you describe your family and what it was like to grow up in East Texas? You know, my family is a unit, a group, a team that epitomizes unconditional love. And growing up in the South, that love was so felt and it was so needed. I grew up in rural East Texas. My mom was a nurse. My stepdad worked at the local coal mine. And I grew up in a town of about 1,200 people where everyone knew everyone, and a lot of people were family. Very happy childhood. Unfortunately, my mom struggled with drug addiction, and that was very challenging for our family. But, you know, Lucy, I use a quote in my book from Nikki Giovanni and her poem, Nikki Rosa, where she says, Black love is black wealth. Mm -hmm. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and not understand that all the while I was quite happy. Mm. I, especially the relationship with you had, that you had with your, your grandmother and your grandfather. Can you tell us about them? Uh, I call my grandparents mama and daddy. They were my dad's parents. And there's just something about the love of your grandparents. It re reminds me of the song, Grandma's Hands. Mm -hmm. And I adored my grandparents. They have both ascended this earth. My grandmother just two short years ago, and I miss them dearly. But they instilled so many values within me that I still carry to this day. Mm -hmm. 
in your book, you talk about how everyone banded together to help your mother while she was getting her uh, nursing license. And uh, you were still in elementary school and you had a, a younger sister. When did you start to notice that she was battling addiction? I think I first started to notice my mom was battling addiction around 1994 when I was 10. Mm. And, you know, it was just subtle changes at first, but then those subtle changes became drastic to the point where my mom ended up going to an inpatient rehabilitation program for several months and unfortunately by the time my mom left rehab in 1995 her addiction was worse when we talk about addiction as adults uh, you know we know that it's a disease and uh, we know more about you know what this what's happening to our loved ones or people we know. But when you're a child, you know, what, is, what was that like to see your mother struggling? And how did you cope with it? And what did you tell your younger sister when she worried? I, being the older sister, was always just more in tune and mama bear when it came to my younger sister. And for me, being the oldest and being really observant of the changes going on was something I wanted to shield my little sister from. And for my mom, her changes showed up in me as fear, anger, resentment. But then there's this unconditional love for your mama. And so that shows up as worry and concern and like you mentioned as a child as a a teenager you know i'm not understanding the disease of drug addiction and there's something when you're growing up and disasters unfolding within your tiny arms reach away Mm. and for some reason i wanted or thought i could fix my mom or save her now that I'm older, I know that one, it's not my job to fix or save her, and two, that that I can, and I'm reconciling these emotions with the time I grew up in, the mid-90s, the height of the war on drugs, the height of the Just Say No campaigns and their programs where people are coming into my school and mm telling us to just say no to drugs and insinuating that the people who become addicted to drugs are among the most morally corrupt, the weakest links. And I'm trying to reconcile this messaging knowing that my mother has a drug addiction. And that brought about just a lot of internal conflict for me at, at such a young age. I knew though even at a young age, at the foundation of it all was I loved my mama. Mm. And I knew she loved me. 
Yeah, you still excelled at school during all of this, you know, internal uh, emotions and worrying about your mom and, and seeing how she was struggling. Why do you think that was? Why do you think that you were still doing so great at school and maybe your teachers didn't know what was going on in your home? Yeah, I definitely don't think my teachers knew what was going on in my home. My mom was what we call now functioning in her addiction at the time. And, you know, I have thought about your question a lot. And part of it, I feel I was going to excel anyway, you know, no matter the circumstances at home. There was something innate in me that was driven towards just being very studious. But I do think that my mom's addiction helped motivate me even more, you know, to find my escape, if you will, in books and and in reading and my Mm -hmm. escape from the reality of my mom's downward, downward spiral. You're hearing Brittany Barnett on Zoom today here on Where We Live. She's an attorney and author of a new memoir, A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. Uh, Brittany, you mentioned that your mother went to rehab, but she didn't get better, and eventually she went to prison. How did that affect your relationship, and how often were you able to see her? When my mom went to prison, it definitely made our relationship stronger. And I was a young adult by this time. I was 22 years old. And I would go visit my mom every single month. She was in prison in Texas. And Texas incarcerates more women by sheer number than any other state in the country. And over 80% of the women in Texas prisons are mothers. Mm -hmm. Texas has 13 or 14 women's prisons in the state. And five of them were in a town called Gatesville, Texas, which is about a two and a half hour drive from Dallas where I live. And so every month my sister and I would make this five hour round trip to visit our mom for two hours in a Texas state prison. Mm. That must have been hard every time to leave her. It was so difficult each and every time we had to leave our mom in prison after a visit. You know, I remember many times making the long drive back and my sister who's about 18 months younger than me, she would drive back and I would be in the passenger seat just turning my head as far right as I could looking out the window more so my sister couldn't see the tears streaming down my face. When I mentioned that your mother went to prison, again, she was struggling with a drug addiction. Why did she end up in prison? the underlying cause was due to her drug addiction. My mom, while she was high one night, committed an assault and it was her first conviction. 
felony or otherwise, and it was totally drug induced, and she received probation. Unfortunately, because my mom's addiction was so strong, she couldn't uphold the terms of her probation as it related to her drug testing. Mm -hmm. And so my mom was repeatedly failing her drug test. She never committed another crime. You know, the only crime that could be argued she was committing was against herself with the drug use. And she would fail a drug test, get more probation, fail a drug test, get more probation until ultimately instead of the rehabilitation that my mom definitely needed she was sentenced to to prison mm-hmm. and she was there for two years and she at that during the time that she was in prison got sober but you make a point to talk about in the book that it wasn't because she was in prison that she was able to do this this was something that that she did on her own despite the experiences she had while incarcerated absolutely my mom went to prison and took every single rehabilitative course that she could. And the reason I say my mom became sober on her own, because none of these courses were mandatory. She voluntarily began the steps to sobriety. And yeah, I can truly say that my mom became sober in spite of prison not because of it. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't feel that punishment is the answer to a public health crisis. Meanwhile, uh, while your mother was in prison, you're still doing well in school. Uh, she gets out and, and you've graduated now. You're working a, a good job in accounting, but then you wanted to go to law school. What was it about law school that made you decide, this is where I wanna head? You know, it's funny because I always wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be Claire Huxtable from the Cosby show. Unfortunately, growing up in rural East Texas, like I did, there were no lawyers in my community and there certainly weren't any lawyers who looked like me. And because of that, I believe as I got older into high school, becoming a lawyer just seemed like a dream that was out of my reach, a profession out of my league. And in hindsight, I realized it's because I didn't know any personally. And and I realized the importance of representation, but the dream always stood at the fringe of my mind. And I remember in college, I was studying for the certified public accountant exam for the state of Texas. And I was borrowing some books from one of my mentors And I just approached him about law school, really just to see what what he would say. And I said, hey, Ken, I'm thinking about going to law school. And he got so excited and he said, oh, you should definitely go to law school. I'm actually starting law school in the fall. And I was happy for my friend. But I remember also thinking, Lucy, now wait a minute. (laughs) If he can go to law school, I know I can go to law school. And that kind of started me back, you know, towards my dream, still didn't know any lawyers. But at the time I was working for an accounting firm and a large law firm was in the same building. 
as our offices. And I went on the law firm's website and scrolled down their list of lawyers. And the first black woman I saw, her name was Krista Brown Sanford. And I sent her a random email and I told her that we worked in the same building and that I wanted to go to law school and I was in hopes that she could meet me at the Starbucks downstairs to give me some guidance and advice. And she responded and we met at the Starbucks and Krista took my hand and 13 years later, she has not let it go since. Mm. She sounds like what a blessing. How many people do that answer a random email and become a mentor uh, to young people? It was truly divine. It was truly divine. And because she did, I definitely worked to do the same, to pay it forward. Now, you ended up in law school and you started taking courses, uh, including on uh, the subject of how racism, racism is embedded in our society. And you started looking at understanding more about mass incarceration, not just from the personal experience of what you saw in your community or how your mother was incarcerated for a few years. So tell us about some of the surprising things you learned in this, uh, this critical race theory class. I took the critical race theory course to truly understand the, the intersection between race and the law. And I was writing a paper in the class about the disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. And what I learned was mind blowing. I remember doing the research and coming across this 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act and how it implemented mandatory minimum sentencing, how it implemented this 100 to one ratio as it related to crack cocaine and powder cocaine. And what that means, Lucy, is you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine and we're going to receive the same sentence in prison. Mm. And it's not lost on anyone today, and especially in the late 80s, that more affluent white people were using powder cocaine and crack cocaine was running rampant through communities of color, in particular black communities. And what I learned as I was researching in this course was how this law passed with little to no legislative history. But what was even more perplexing for me was how it impacted people in real life. And this 100 to one ratio created a huge disparity in sentencing and a disproportionate number of black and brown people landed in prison because of it. To the extent that even today in the federal system, nearly 80% of the people in federal prison today for drugs are black and brown. And I wanted to really show the heartbeat behind this law. My mom had been to prison. I had an experience that brought me to my knees when my mom went to prison, an experience that brought me proximate to the suffering and just how mass incarceration devastates families and entire communities. And to put a heartbeat on the paper, I needed stories and I Googled one night in the law library, woman life sentence 
federal drugs and up pops the case of Sharonda Jones. Mm. And so you watched that YouTube video of Sharonda Jones. We're going to talk more about what you learned uh, just watching that video and how it changed your life. Again, my guest is Brittany Barnett here on Where We Live, an attorney and author of A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is lawyer Brittany Barnett, and we're talking about her memoir, A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. She joins us on Zoom today from Texas. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So right before the break, uh, Brittany, you told us that you Googled women, prison, and life sentence, and that's how you discovered Sharonda Jones. So tell us more about that video and how it changed your life. The video of Sharonda Jones truly showed me a woman who did not deserve to be in prison for the rest of her life. Sharonda Jones was a black woman from the rural South like me. And at the time she was serving her 10th year in federal prison for federal drug offense, her first ever arrest or conviction. And she was serving life without parole. There's no parole in the federal system. So anyone with life in federal prison is set to die there. And I remember seeing her on the YouTube video and seeing so much of myself in her, you know, and she was so positive and I remember just thinking I have to to help her. And I wrote her a letter. I sent her a card with it and told her I was a law student and I was going to be practicing corporate law. And I didn't know a lot about criminal law, but that I wanted to help her get out of prison. And she wrote me back on very nonchalant and wished me well in my studies. <laughs> but you could tell she had been let down a lot mm-hmm. by lawyers and I began digging into her case. Her case just tugged at my soul. And I found that Sharonda Jones was serving a life sentence for a minor role in a federal drug conspiracy. Sharonda Jones served essentially at the mercy of two drug suppliers. She, on a handful of occasions, transported powder cocaine from Dallas to Houston for two drug suppliers. And I learned that Sharonda Jones had utilized her constitutional right to go to trial. Everyone else on the case, including the co-conspirators who she was transporting the drugs for, took plea deals. And what was so striking to me about Sharonda's case was the drug supplier, one of them a man who had admitted to 
trafficking hundreds of kilograms of powder cocaine. He testified against Sharonda Jones, all in exchange for lesser sentences. Mm. And so Sharonda was serving life and he was already out of prison by the time I found Sharonda's case. And I just didn't understand it. I, I had to learn more about these laws and, and how we got here. And I learned that Sharonda got life because the judge found that she knew or should have known that the powder cocaine she was transporting was going to be converted to crack cocaine. And Sharonda was sentenced because of this reasonable foreseeability. She was sentenced to under the harsher crack penalties. And so she, if she had been offered a plea deal, she wouldn't have been sentenced to life without parole? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Sharonda received what we call a trial tax. And we see it a lot in this country where people who opt to utilize their constitutional right to go to trial end up with much more severe sentences than if they had pled guilty. And in Sharonda's case, what was even more mind-blowing for me was how she was held accountable for 23 kilograms of crack cocaine under this concept in the federal system that's called ghost dope. There were no drugs ever found on Sharonda Jones, no surveillance, no controlled drug buys, no large sums of money. In the federal system under conspiracy laws, a person can be held accountable for the extent of the drugs of the whole conspiracy, and they can be held accountable for ghost dope based solely on the testimony of other people and other people who are receiving sentence reductions in exchange for their testimony. It truly was an emotional roller coaster for me to learn that I was now entering a legal system that that allows this to happen. You said that you were trying to understand how Sharonda got such a severe sentence. I'm sure our listeners are also confused about how she ended up with life without parole. You mentioned uh, because she was part of this this drug conspiracy. But also, can you talk about the enhancements? What happened because she went to trial and how the judge had to hand down the sentence? Yes, well, we're starting with the judge enhancing her sentence under this penalty that's much harsher for crack, even though even the witnesses testified that Sharonda was transporting powder cocaine. So that is a huge disadvantage for her at the outset. And then Sharonda Jones testified on her own behalf at trial. And because she was found guilty, the judge said that Sharonda Jones had to have committed perjury on the stand which is considered obstruction of justice. And she received this two-point enhancement for that. Then she received another two-point enhancement because Sharonda Jones was licensed to carry a handgun in the state of Texas. And when questioned on the stand, she said that she always kept her handgun on her. She was an entrepreneur, a small business owner. She operated in cash businesses. She had a hair salon and a small restaurant. However, because she was found guilty, the judge said, well, if you had the gun all the time, you had to have had it with you transporting drugs. So she was enhanced for 
possession of a firearm and furtherance of a drug conspiracy. Hmm. And then she was enhanced for this leadership role because Sharonda's entire family was swept up in this drug arrest bust. And after all these enhancements were tacked on, even though her career history was one because she had never had any convictions or arrests, Sharonda Jones had never even received a traffic ticket (laughs) before. Mm -hmm. And because of all these enhancements, because the base foundation of her sentence was starting with crack penalties, Sharonda received a mandatory life sentence. This is where we live. Uh, With me on Zoom today is author Brittany Barnett. She's also an attorney and she's written a memoir called A Knock at Midnight. Uh, Brittany would go on to be a corporate lawyer, but uh, she ended up working pro bono to help free people like Sharonda Jones and others who were serving these harsh mandatory minimum sentences. Everything we've talked about, uh, Brittany, um, are um, impacts from the war on drugs. Uh, It began under Nixon in the 70s and then strengthened under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Uh, Sharonda Jones was sent to prison in 1999. As we talk today, there have been reforms. So if Sharonda Jones um, was uh, on trial today, would she have faced the same kind of sentence that she got back in 1999? Absolutely not. And that is what got me excited when I began working on her case because I saw that members of Congress were speaking out about this unfair 100 to 1 ratio. I saw the United States Sentencing Commission coming out with report after report showing that this disparity between crack and powder cocaine was unfounded. They're two forms of the same drug. And I saw case law changing and policy changing. Unfortunately, there were so many roadblocks for me for Sharonda because even with this changing legal landscape as it related to federal drug sentencing, these changes in the law and policy were not being made retroactive. You ended up again meeting her in prison while you were a law student. Talk about when you first met her and talked with her and what was it about her again that made you decide you were going to work on this to try to find some way to help uh, see her uh, not in prison anymore? You know, the priority for me in that was it's just wrong. It was just wrong for Sharonda to be serving a fundamental death sentence. And I knew that from learning about the case. And then when I met her in person, first of all, I had no idea what to expect in meeting her. I had never met anyone set to die in prison before. And I remember sitting in the visitation room at the federal prison in Fort Worth, Texas, and Sharonda Jones walks into the visitation room. And what I got was a woman whose smile lit up the room. What I got was a woman who, it was obvious, impacted many of the women in prison in a positive manner around her, just from the high Sharondas and all the smiles she was getting. And that was so empowering for me that she could be so positive in the face of adversity that would be unbearable for many. And I knew after talking to her, it was one of those times 
Lucy, where you meet a familiar stranger mm-hmm. and she became like family to me. That first visit, we hardly even talked about her case at all. It was like we were longtime friends who were reuniting and catching up on life. And that human element, that heartbeat is just so important for me. And I knew then that I was going to do everything in my power to help free Sharonda Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who are going to be listening to this story or who may pick up your book, Brittany. And again, you know, they'll think, well, Sharonda Jones shouldn't have been this in the middle of uh, this, uh, you know, as her role between a cocaine buyer and a supplier. And this is why uh, she's in prison. So what would you tell people? I would tell people that there are definitely crimes in this country and you break the law, there are consequences to those actions. But Sharonda Jones's consequence should have never been life without the possibility of parole. And I would tell them to really try to open their hearts and minds to see the families devastated, the lives destroyed, and to really remember that life without parole is the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America other than the death penalty. And life without parole, it screams a person is beyond hope, beyond redemption, and it truly suffocates mass potential as it buries people alive. And in Sharonda's case and and hundreds and thousands of others like her who are serving excessive sentences under these outdated drug laws, looking at Sharonda, she was serving the same amount of time in prison as a Unabomber. Mm. And so it is both morally and economically unjustifiable for people like Sharonda to be serving these fundamental death sentences The United States spends $80 billion a year on incarceration. And that is an estimate. It doesn't include the money spent by loved ones for collect calls or the money spent by loved ones for gas, for transportation, to to travel to these prisons to visit their loved ones. And so we're spending a lot of money and a lot of taxpayer dollars and I would just ask anyone who had that question to to really try to reimagine justice and to ask themselves, do we really want a, a legal system that is so flawed in its design? Mm-hmm. So you would go on to meet Sharonda, uh, visit her over and over again uh, in the prison and uh, your friendship grew you would go on to have a corporate law career. You're working pretty much at night on trying to find ways to get Sharonda Jones out. And really it came up to the only tool that you had because she was in life, uh, a federal prison, life without parole, was clemency. So how do you start that process, Brittany? Oh, I'll start by saying I had never heard of clemency before. (laughs) And as I realized, I had to be honest with myself that even though these laws were changing, 
they were not retroactive and there was just no way I was going to be able to get Sharonda free through the court. And that was a hard pill to swallow. You know, I started to think that I just get her hopes up only to let her down. And then I learned about clemency and clemency to me is where justice meets mercy. And it's a power granted to the president of the United States and state governors solely exclusive to them by the constitution. And the president at the time was president Barack Obama. And I knew this was our, our last shot at hope. And so I began this journey of preparing a clemency petition for Sharonda Jones to file with the office of the pardon attorney and hope that president Obama would grant her clemency. And I wanted to do all that I could to show the woman behind the prisoner number in my petition to truly humanize Sharonda and show the human capital that is being wasted. And that, that began our clemency journey. And there were so many people uh, back from your community in East Texas who knew that you were an attorney, Brittany, and they wanted help as well. Uh, people that you knew or went to school with that were also caught up in the war on drugs. So while you're helping Sharonda Jones, you're also helping other people. Yes, these cases just started coming to me so divinely. I, I went on to graduate law school and I did. I went to practice corporate law following my dreams and moving, you know, multi-million dollar deals by day and working pro bono at night on these cases and just seeing the true extent of the damages of these excessive sentences. You know, I was learning more and more. It's much bigger than Toronto Jones, this problem that we're facing and started just seeing there were so many people buried alive. There were uh, a lot of people that applied for clemency under President Obama. You talk about that uh, in your book. And uh, you would get notification that someone that you were working uh, to help uh, through this clemency uh, application, um, that they got it. And all the while, you're still waiting to get that call for Sharonda. Yes, it was a long wait. I filed Sharonda's clemency petition in November 2013, and President Obama shortly thereafter began his historic clemency initiative, where he was promising to prioritize cases like Sharonda's in his clemency initiative. And we were all just so excited, and we started to see President Obama granting more and more clemencies to people who were serving sentences for federal drug offenses, sentences far beyond what they would get if sentenced today. And Sharonda Jones wasn't on any of these lists that were coming out over the couple of years after I filed her petition. And I even had another client, Donald Clark, who received clemency. And he had about six years left. He had served 22 years already. And I was so happy for him that day when I received the call that he was going home. But I remember thinking, what about Sharonda Jones? And she still wasn't free. And that that was definitely a time for me to draw very strongly on my faith.
Mm. When did you finally get the call? On a day I will never, ever forget, December 18th, 2015, my mom and I were running some errands and I received a, a phone call with a DC area code. And it was right before Christmas, right before the Obamas would go to Hawaii for their annual holiday trip. And it was a lawyer on the other line from the pardon attorney's office. And she said that President Barack Obama had granted Sharonda Jones executive clemency and that her life sentence was being commuted to time served. Mm -hmm. And when you got to speak to Sharonda, what did she say? She was so happy and she just kept saying, thank you, thank you. And the clemency surely came at the right time because Sharonda's daughter, her only child, was pregnant. And she was set to give birth a few months later. And there had been a lot of worry from Sharonda and her daughter on, you know, how her daughter is going to give birth, you know, without her own mom there. And part of the call with Sharonda that always sticks out to me is while I'm telling her she's going home and, and she's processing the news, she kept repeating, I'll get to be there for the baby. I'll get to be there for the baby. That's really powerful when you think about uh, when she was sentenced to prison, her daughter was only eight years old. And so to be there to help her with her granddaughter must have been a, a huge blessing. Yes, such a blessing. And, you know, I get chills now just thinking about it, the the joy from that day of, of telling her we had given that life sentence back. You know, words words honestly can't begin to describe the joy. Mm -hmm. So Sharonda Jones served uh, more than 16 years in prison again before being granted clemency by President Obama. Uh, you didn't stop with Sharonda, and all seven individuals were granted clemency under the Obama administration because of your efforts. We're going to talk about what kept Brittany Barnett on this path after the break. Again, she's written the memoir, A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. This is where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel, broadcasting remotely. Today, my guest on Zoom, Brittany Barnett, an attorney and author of A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. Barnett became an activist for the incarcerated, working pro bono while juggling a career as a corporate lawyer. She would go on to co-found the Buried Alive Project, a nonprofit that works to free people serving life without parole under outdated federal drug laws. Uh, Brittany, you worked on clemency petitions during President Trump's time in office, and I understand he granted clemency for two clients of yours, but then what happened? Yes, I started to really realize that I wanted to continue to do this, this work. And as you mentioned, I co-founded the Buried Alive Project with Sharonda Jones and 
Corey Jacobs, and we've gone on to free dozens of men and women who are serving these excessive sentences. And it's truly been a remarkable journey working across administrations, seeing people like my client, Alice Marie Johnson, being freed. And, you know, many people witness her freedom and an image I'll never forget that played across news outlets across the nation was her, Alice Johnson, running across the street from the prison into her, her family's arms. And that journey was truly, truly remarkable. Mm. Uh, she was uh, released with the help of, of some celebrity uh, power as well. Does that frustrate you, Brittany, when you think about all of the people that are still in prison because of uh, these policies uh, that don't get that kind of publicity and their families are still hoping for, for some miracle for them? You know, I am extremely grateful that Alice's case caught the attention of Kim Kardashian West and that Kim was not only moved to tears, she was moved to action. And I'm honored to have been a part of, of that legal team and to have worked with Kim to help free Alice Johnson. But I, I don't think it should take a celebrity to help free someone. I am truly hopeful that people will start to see that there are many more Alice Johnsons and there's a lot that we could do to help vote, to help change these laws, to help get many, many more people home with their families. Mm. We just have a, a few minutes left, Brittany, but you know, when you thought about writing this book and now that it's out, you know, who do you want to pick up your book and what more do you think communities can do to help people who are incarcerated and their families? I would like anyone with an interest in humanity to pick up the book. I wrote the book to help educate people about what I had learned, things that I had no idea were occurring within this nation's criminal legal system. And I'm hopeful that people who are interested in transforming the legal system will read the book, will educate themselves through other books and documentaries, and certainly become engaged with voting and knowing that the people we vote for to Congress or state legislators or local elections are all playing a role in this criminal legal system and ensuring that we're holding people who are elected accountable for helping us to transform the system. And also I would encourage people interested in this topic to reach out to local grassroots organizations doing the work to see how they can help volunteer. And also to see if there are any organizations around them where they could volunteer to go inside a prison. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very important. I think it is very stigma shattering. It is an experience that will help open hearts and minds to create empathy, to actually visit a, a person, a man or woman, someone's mother and father, to show that, that we care. I should mention uh, that when we think about how to support 
families. We can't forget about the children who may have a mom or dad incarcerated. And that's something that you were also working on through your organization uh, of GEM. Can you tell us briefly about that? Girls Embracing Mothers is an organization that I founded that empowers girls with mothers in prison to break the cycle of incarceration and, and lead successful lives with vision and purpose. And we partner with Texas women's prisons and take girls to visit their moms in prison. And it all stems from my own experience of having an incarcerated mother. We work to break the cycle and build the bond. Mm. And your mom is doing well today. My mom is doing so well today. She has been home 12 years now. She's working as a nurse again, actually at a drug recovery center. Mm. Well, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Brittany Barnett, again, an attorney, author of A Knock at Midnight, a story of hope, justice, and freedom. You can read an excerpt of her book at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Brittany, thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.